Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Played in Full, where we've actually got a full house today. Yeah, it's been a minute. Well gone, guys. How is, how is everyone? Wow. Silence. <laughs> well, space trying to think. There you go. <laughs> I am here. I'm I wanted like... everyone else to answer, but you know, nobody wanted to, so. Oh, I, I thought I'd let the olders go first, then it, so that's why. Shut up. You're obsessed with age, but you're an older to someone already. I listen, I keep telling people that I like 21. Oh, when you're my age, trust me, it's hurting me. It's hurting my soul. I don't think no, you can you're, say you're, when yeah, you're, you're my saying age, 21, but like for kids, you're just an you're an old man. No, no, like, no. There's no, no. I'm differentiation about, like, my, my, my between us and us and my, you. My nephew so turned 21 and I was like, I was like, oh, when you're my age, trust me. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, you? yeah, man. Like, Russ, I feel like you ain't been here for a sec. I've not been here for a long time. Rush, it's you've busy. There, man. I've been ill a lot. I've been working a lot. It's quite stressful. And yeah, I'm so I well, we'll talk a bit, la- bit later. But I saw because of the family with my brother, and he was coming off the end of a long cold, as he was calling it, and he said he was better. And I came away from that. And I've been sick for about 10 days now. So, so yeah. you've got the long cold. Sounds, I've got the long cold. Sounds like David. And I've got, yeah, I've got the big uh, Corona. Hence the um, oh, no. endless pack of strepsils. And, Sounds like David. and everything. Yeah. yeah I know. It's, it's crazy how we really just went through that whole period of COVID and the pandemic. And it impacted so much. But now it's just like a common thing a come and go kind of thing. But yeah, man, get better soon. 
And like, yeah, right? I feel like everyone's been in that that work mode. It's been very kind of irregular in terms of times and patterns. But we've all actually been tuned into film and TV as usual, and this is what I love. So we've got a lot to actually catch up on. Like, um, I would say first and foremost, I think we're all a fan of Friends here. So I'd just like to say rest in peace to Matthew Perry. All right, man. Yeah, like it's it's kind of weird to talk about these topics for me um we don't have like such a a personal relationship with actors and stuff like that however like i at least try to yeah i am i think of actors and their impression through their work and the power of what they do and what they bring to society and i feel like friends had such an untold impact on film and television through the actors as well but yeah, man, what what are you guys like thoughts and feelings on the whole situation? I'm sad, man. I think Friends ended when I think what for me, Ross and Judy would have been what, eleven, twelve? Maybe a little bit younger. Yeah. Probably younger. Probably like yeah. nine. Impossible. Like Imp- impossible. No, impossible. Was it two thousand four? Yeah. Ended in two thousand four. So I was six. Eleven. Yeah, eleven. Eleven, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. and I, I say that today because I remember a lot of stuff was changing in my life when I was 11 years old and I remember friends feeling like a signifier of that like I remember I was getting ready to have to move obviously leaving primary all, like bare different things in life were going on and friends was ending and I was like it almost felt like the end of my childhood that type era and I remember being really sad that friends ended <laughs> Because it felt like the defining, like I said, so much stuff was going on in my life that felt like a part of the chapter. It's like life was saying, yo, things actually end or things change. And yeah. I had, friends had obviously been about most of my life. I probably didn't get it like for ages, but I remember Chandler being incredibly sarcastic and being one of my favorite characters for years. So much so that I remember being a teenager and calling myself the Black Chandler Bing for ages, which changed to the Black Seth Cohen when OC came out. But like, he was just one of those characters that I just thought was hilarious and was, he brought so much to the show. Obviously people, a lot of people's favorite character was Joey, especially in those ages, actually like 11, right? And Joey's the most like slapstick, like, does like ridiculous things, says ridiculous things. And like, obviously Ross is Ross and gets into ridiculous situations, but Chandler was always like making like the smart little quips that like the other characters might not even get that he's taking the piss out of him. And I was like, I love this man. Like, I think this guy is great. And I didn't realize how hard it is to be comedically funny in acting or even just how funny Matthew Perry was himself. But I feel like with time, I've grown to appreciate it even more. And it's just like such amazing loss because he seemed like somebody who truly wanted to be altruistic as well. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I feel like that is represented much more like in his later work. And there was even a lot of commentary and, and talks about how he himself wanted to be like memorized like when he passed on. And he did kind of want to distance himself from friends and, associate with the yeah the things that really 
made such an impression on his later life and, and career. And yeah, man, like it's, yeah, definitely, definitely a very sad situation. But I think, I guess we'll learn more over time. And yeah, hopefully there would be some kind of, I don't know, balance with the situation. But yeah, moving on, Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon. I feel like that is, well, that is definitely our main topic for today where we've all like seen it um, different at different times. We were going to link up, but I feel like the, yeah, we didn't have the time. <laughs> Everyone was kind of like working in different situations. I had to go to Liverpool, had a ticket for a BFI viewing with Scully and CJ, but I couldn't attend. So those two went. Um, Ross, when did you get to see it? I saw it the the first day it came out on the Friday. I saw it with my brother and then I saw it again following Tuesday or Wednesday. So I've seen it twice now. Has anyone else seen it twice? I'm yet to see it again. I was actually thinking about seeing it again tonight. I nearly forgot the pod was on and I nearly, nearly saw it twice today. And then I remembered and I was like, oh yeah, I've got stuff to do after work. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear it. Yeah, like I think, I think with a film like that, I try to uh, space out the way I watch it, and uh, it's it's long, isn't it? It's it's long to watch like such a heavy film for me like twice in such a short period of time. Although I do sometimes, like I've done that, especially with that Marvel type of film and. And shit like that, but uh, yeah, I feel like with the topic, I was so kind of locked into the film itself. I wanted to kind of take it in with this one big impression, so I didn't want to like expect to like see it again so soon. Yeah, I feel like um, with films like that, I don't know. I feel like with films like that, I, first of all, I don't like to watch films back to back. Anyway, full stop. Like I like. I, yeah, I have done it with Marvel films, but I don't like to. I kind of will go because my friends are going to go watch it again. But more time, I like to try and give it a week or two so I can digest it a little bit, if that sounds right. Like, I'm the type of person, if you're going out for food and we enjoy the food, I won't want to go and eat there again the next week. I want to space it out a little bit and enjoy it a bit more. I feel like Kids of the Flower Moon is definitely a film I have to see at least twice. But I'm not even, like... I'm not even like in a huge rush to because I'm still thinking about how I felt when I watched it. Um, it was really interesting as well to have watched it kind of like a week or two after watching Martin Scorsese speak at the BFI and hearing things that motivated him and artists and influences and the type of films that he wanted to make and to who he is today. And I think the growth of him as a filmmaker is really well signified within this film. I definitely think part of it is just because, um, I, like I said, I just watched him speak, but it's great, man. Like, it's great. Like to go from where he was to where he is today and to be able to find something. So all encompassing his first film was a film loosely based on stuff going around his area in New York. And now he's he's doing something like Killers of the Flower Moon, which is essentially talking about a time just before he, when he was born, 
chronicling it and showing a side to America that I think America actually usually tries to hide and the West in general in their filmmaking and their art, right? Like people yeah. try not to show the atrocities of like, for example, colonization and getting rid of um, indigenous people and like all of these subjects, we know they happened, but I feel like the the tail end of the last millennium, it was kind of like, let's just pretend they didn't. It's almost mm-hmm. like let's force we live in a post-racial society and just ignore these things happening because that was the past. But getting to watch something like Kids of the Flower Moon in 2023 and knowing it was like, what, like 89 years ago, really humanizes these things again. Yeah, I feel like it was such a, it was, in in a weird way, in a film sense, it was probably a near perfect time for a film like that to come out. Obviously, you would want representation earlier, quicker to alleviate the problems, and that would always be the case. But in this type of industry, with the type of director and the type of story it is, because I remember we had like so many different conversations about the direction of this film itself, and immediately when I heard about the subject matter, that's what I thought. I thought about what is the weight of a film that represents like a an oppressed culture or nature uh, nation in this instance and like community like what is the the weight of that and is this something that you know Scorsese can entirely do in a way I knew he could but you know the question will always be there because it's such a sensitive time like one or two things or even scenes like for instance with Maestro we know like the whole kind of big wave and red flag about that that film. It's just like one thing that's kind of triggered like everything in terms of response to the, the film. And in the very same way with dealing with like the Osage like nation and their history, there's also that kind of weight. So I was very interested in, yeah, like, like you said, the talk that we attended and just like the the press around the whole build up towards the film, I feel like it it built up our expectations to be like, look, this is Scorsese's take and a take on the film, and it's not entirely. We know it's not from the, this perspective, but it's been given that that green light from these people, and they like the representation that they they got in the film. So, yeah, that's what it came down to for me. And what about you, CJ? How did you enjoy it? Or um, also, can I just say, yeah, before we get into CJ, yeah, um, I I want to be clear with the wording because it's not like every Osage said, yeah, this represents us or has given it the green light. Mm. It was that famous Twitter clip of the language consultant who consults today to make sure they use the right language. But he's not like the be all and end all. Like this represents Osage, and even yeah. in that clip, I think what he's saying is like it represents the some of our customs and the words we use, well, as opposed to like the people themselves. But we'll get into that. True. No, that's a good point. But yeah, I just wanted to get like CJ's perspective as well. I seen it as a history lesson. I can't lie. Um, like mm. in a good way. Um, I like because that. I didn't know like more ignorantly I'd say about like the Native Americans because I've never ever kind of um 
I've never ever kind of like divulged into it or anything like that. I've seen like few instances. Um, and when I say a few instances, I'm talking little ones, like if they're in like a game, like I remember there was um, the parts in like Red Dead Redemption where mm-hmm. you would like the native Indian guys and whatever, blah, blah, do whatever. Um, but yeah, no, it was like, okay, the Osage, these were the, these, were these people um, and this is what happened. And do you know what, like, once again, the way, the, way, the way I'm saying I saw it like a history film is because, or a history lesson, is because it was teaching me like what happened. Like, yo, like, these men were obliterated on it, like, yeah. like and, and targeted on. Um, and like, it was, like I was saying, like me and Scotty were saying, like, it was, it was a genocide, isn't it, that they went through. Um, and cool, you might think like 30 people in one town is, is not a lot, but that was the whole of the Osage people in within that town. So, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I can imagine it only weren't just happening in that town. It was happening mm-hmm. across states. Um, and you have to look at it as well is, to your point, CJ, so I have to interject again, yeah, that, um, that might have been 30 people there, but when they're showing in that film, they're talking about a specific area at a specific time, like you're saying. Like it's even not talking about like the entirety of all the Native American people, like the way they covered the entire, because deep it's like nineteen thirties, no? But is it after World War One? Bro, like it's World like it's II? just after World War One, just just after World, World War One, like the nineties twenties, in twenties, like that means they've already obliterated like millions of Native Americans. Like you're not even seeing it from that perspective. You're seeing it as like, oh yeah, we kind of live in harmony now. Yeah. Which yeah. Is so, so it's yeah, set in twenties Oklahoma. So yeah, you gotta think. I'm not like an American historian, but I know Oklahoma is a type of area, you know. And yeah, as Scully was saying, like there's so many different like tribes of people like Native Americans like um living across America and um Canada obviously and yeah. So I just feel like it's such a it's such a heavy and prominent topic, and I I love history. I love history, especially taught through like um film and TV. And I think there is it. It's a bit weird for me because I have this thing about commodifying ideas. Like I feel like it's very wrong that these things were allowed to occur within society, and we've come to a point where a product a cultural product like a film has to be made by one of the best directors alive and of all time for people to take notice and, and learn about these things. And, but I also would say like CJ, I don't think um, it's entirely a thing of ignorance. It's not, it's not a thing where we have to know about like every single individual, like instance of oppression within the world. But I feel like within our societies or kind of framework of what's happening, we should realize those prejudices, the things that are still kind of taking place from that. So yeah, like the weight of the film is is different. Yeah. But yeah, man, like um what did everyone actually think about like the the film in a whole? Like what was the experience like for you guys like in in watching a film? Like who were your favorite actors? Like yeah. Um I'll go first on this. Um, so I will say that like the film for me, 
it kind of felt like 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 I said, it was like a history lesson, but it was also like a murder mystery. Like okay, kind of like gl- like glass onion knives out kind of vibes. Um, but like you could you knew who was doing it. Do you know what I mean? The only thing we didn't know is if um, I can't remember Leo's ca- character what it was called. Ernest. Ernest. Yep, Ernest um, we didn't know if uh, we didn't know if Ernest was like fully aware of what was going on. Obviously, I think an hour and something into the film, we're, we're like, okay, he, he's doing this. Um, so I kind of like loved that kind of angle that they were showing it from. Um, best performances for me, Robert De Niro, man. Like, he was amazing. Like, honest to God, I was saying to Scully, like, I was just clocking his facial expressions in the scenes where he weren't talking, but like he was around the Osage, like in the wedding scene, my man's face was stone cold, like stone cold, weren't moving. Like I could feel the hatred coming from the look that he was given. Um, I also liked um, the guy who played um, Ernest's brother. I really liked his performance. Um, I really, really, really liked um, Molly's performance. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, yeah, and then obviously shout out to Brandon Fraser man for the little ten minutes um, that you got. But yeah, that that's that's what I thought of the film. Yeah, no, just to even stick on that Brandon Fraser point, that was such a. I know it's towards the back end of the film. And we're talking probably talking about the film in like a very, um, you know, cut up kind of way. But it was a point of conversation immediately, even before you guys saw it in the group chat. But yeah, I remember. <laughs> I yeah I enjoyed his his appearance I took it for what I feel like everyone's come to that conclusion I took it for he came in to be that prick and his character was that guy that he just had no understanding or way to navigate the situation because we're dealing with characters that knew these people or yeah knew like the Osage people so they were kind of bouncing back and forth off them and kind of playing them at their own kind of games and and principles in order to take over and yeah it, it, it was just it was just like a nice little interjection but Ross what did you think about it because I remember you were you were literally killing me after the film I mean yeah the, the first time I, as I say I've watched it twice the first time I watched it was after a two-day stint in Manchester and basically spent about eight hours traveling over two days and just absolutely exhausted by the Friday. And I went in and you could tell that it was kind of like a mega film because when it's Scorsese, you know, it's always going to be important and urgent and vital, but it just wasn't what I was expecting the first time around. And, you know, yeah, we're talking about Brendan Fraser. When I first came out of that screening on that Friday, I was like, you have to cut him out. If you'd cut that scene out and you cut him out entirely, it's a better film. Because it was just so jarring. Like, he's just coming in and he's just screaming. And he's just like, whoa, this is... You know, everything that's come before, like, what, what for me felt the first time, this sort of slow burn, this kind of really kind of like, you know, slow pace, this kind of build-up. And then suddenly you just got this man screaming at the camera and like, this is this is not it. Mm. Um, and I think, the, I think the challenge I had on that first viewing as well is the fact that it just felt like it was the wrong perspective. And, you know, initially, I, I believe the script, when Scorsese was kind of mapping it out, was meant to be more true to the book 
um, which is obviously the film was based on, which is basically, you know, like the formi- like formation of the FBI in one of their biggest cases, you know, like when they first uh, were established. So it's meant to be more from Jesse Plemons' character, I think it was Tom White, um, and kind of how they solve the murders. Obviously, they, they didn't like that approach. And in hindsight, that's probably the best thing because that's starting to drift into like white savior territory. And that would be the completely wrong thing for a movie like this. Yeah. So to frame it as, you know, the white villains was is interesting. And I, and I understand why Scorsese like, opted for that. But coming out of that first screening, I thought this, it just was wrong. You know, like you have all these kind of Osage characters and Lily Gladstone giving this like huge performance. Mm. But then it all feels like it's sidelined. And that's why particularly when Brendan Fraser shows up that final hour, it feels like all of them get pushed to the side to really yeah. just focus on the white guys and how bad and evil they are. And you know, he does it very well, but it's just like, I want to see more of them. I, you know, it's, it feels like the, the balance was off. Yeah. So I went back the following week. And once you kind of read a bit more about it, you can appreciate the reason why he's taken certain approaches. Actually, what I did find on that second viewing is the pace is so much quicker and kind of more urgent than you think the first time around actually is just really fast because when I was watching it with Antia, we were already at like the two and a half hour mark and it felt a lot quicker than the first time around. Yeah. You know, there's all these scenes where it just kind of builds that kind of suspense and that tension. And it's just, I think it's a perfect film to just kind of show how these characters are just completely unsavable. They're just complete pieces of shit and it's just hammered home further and further throughout. Um, But the film is at its most interesting when it's Molly's point of view and he can't escape that, you know, and part of one of the challenges I do have with the film is that everyone keeps coming out and saying, Oh, it, no way does it give kind of Leonardo's kind of like, you know, Ernest a conscience. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think it does. You know, there are those kind of bits where like, you know, when he's speaking to Blackie Thompson, he's just like, Oh, I love more money more than I love my wife. It then kind of cuts to scenes where by this point he knows that, his uncle's kind of motive is to essentially kill out the, the entire Brown family. That means killing Molly. But you see him grapple with it and he still kind of loves her and he doesn't want to kill her and all that kind of thing. And it looks and feels at times like he's still kind of, you know, um, challenged with that. You know, he yeah. still wants to be the loving husband, but he's doing it kind of at a sense of kind of, I guess, I don't know, guilt and kind of uh, respect for his uncle. And, I personally think that that's not necessarily kind of the best approach that it should have taken. I think it should have just been more clear cut that, yeah, he just wanted the money. He should have just been doing it of his own volition by that point, by still framing it that he's following his uncle's kind of lead and that he's just the dumbass. I don't know, it still doesn't quite sit right. And, you know, especially when you get to the final end kind of hour, because it kind of also then feels like, I've had times that it made the Osage look a little bit naive and stupid. Yeah. And I don't know, I just came out and just there's, there's elements to it where I thought, I just, I can't believe, even if that is true to life and that's exactly how it happened, I kind of think there's no way that this kind of Osage character here, or, you know, this group and this community would look at Ernest and his uncle and his brother and just be like, these are still lovely people. We should trust them, even though the white men clearly want to kill us, but not these particular ones. Yeah, I think the thing that I struggled with and let's take it to Brendan Fraser first, because I like Brendan Fraser's character from the off, only because 
I think in the film, to me, he signified the real insidiousness of um, of structural racism and how it works within the Western world, right? Mm. So it's like these people that you see in the room when they take Ernest back after he's been um, in the jail cells, he's out on bail, the way they talk to him, the way they regard him as a little boy, they they talk about how stupid he is, even though he's like clearly for that generation in that world, he's not actually stupid, which is another problem I have, but we'll talk about that. But um, the way they talk down on him and like kind of little boy him a lot of the way, like it was very reflective of like the issue with structural racism. And like, like this is, we've made this world so that we can succeed in this world. We don't want you to allow other people to even be able to fight back in this world. And if anybody talks down or tries to dismantle what we're doing, we are here to make sure that that does not happen. Like he was like, Brendan Fraser was the visible character. And the fact that he's so larger than life, he shouts, he's petulant, he behaves like a spoiled brat, essentially. Like, I think he's a good physical representation of that. Like he walks into the courtroom, like he expects to get his way all the time. And he shouts and he commands him. He does the same on Ernest. And that it's almost like he can't believe that a white man is even going to court for murdering these quote unquote savages. Like, and even though it pans to the jury and you see that all old white men who are clearly over the age of 45, like minimum, in that age, yeah. So let's say like where there is a lot more interracial marriage and people marriage and people are mixing, like not just of Native Americans, but even black people, you know that any man over the age of 45 is gonna hold deeper prejudices because you come from a further back time where these people have even less civil rights and you don't see them as human. It's also an interesting point, like, because you mentioned the jury there. Mm-hmm. One of the lead kind of people on that jury is the kind of the banker who Molly yeah. has to go to to ask for money and yes. he'll say yes or no. He's also the leader of the Ku Klux Klan, yeah, kind of local yeah. division in that point. And he's kind of walking along really happily, kind of just saying, like, oh, hi, everyone. So, you know, throughout, it's kind of suddenly, kind of, a, not necessarily suddenly, but it's dropped that, you know, this guy has power, he has control. He also kind of alludes to that point, you know, when they um, they blow up Bill's house, Bill and Rita's house. And mm-hmm. he kind of says to um, uh, to King and to De Niro, and he says, like, you know, you're, you're making yourself too prominent. You know, you're making yeah. yourself too obvious. They're aware. So he's, they're, all aware. they're all aware of it. And so he sat on the jury, you know, almost kind of just like you expect these guys to get off because they're all in on it. And here he is, you know. And it does show that in a really subtle way. I think my biggest gripe was to CJ's point, I think it's very clear from point one that his uncle makes it that what what his intentions are with Molly, they're financial. Like he says to him, as soon as Ernest comes to his house, he says, Listen, the cattle business is going out of business. Like, in a few years, I'm not going to be able to have all this money that I've had previously. Um, These people are rich. They've got way more money than us, and they've got less work than us. We should go and take it. Like, you should marry into that family. And he makes it super clear. And, again, like you said, an hour in CJ, I think before that, from when Molly's sister is talking about, like, you know, oh, this guy wants to kill me, or, like, the brother Byron is like, saying certain things about how you can get rid of certain people. For me, it's really clear that Ernest is complicit. And I think one of my grabs of the film was it does its best to make it opaque and unclear, which I think is unfair. Like, 
the guy knew and he might have had kids with her and that but like let's not try and paint him out as some like super doting husband or father like let's call it what it is he was a gold digger <laughs> who married a woman who had a shit ton of money and he wanted access to that money whatever it took like yeah. i get it cool he's killed the sister and all of this like and you're not involved in that but from the second that like your uncle is telling you, listen, this is how we're going to lead that household. You know what's going on. And you can take that. When you've had the conversation with her sister's husband and he's saying, I know you two are behind it. If you are if you don't want to be complicit, at that moment you say, you know what, my uncle's shoehorning me into this, but like, come on, let's fight back together. Like, it really didn't want to out and out Ernest's character, which is fair enough. Like, he, he's allowed to interpret how it did, but I did like the subtle ways in which they showed the structural racism throughout the film. Like, even the hint to... So there was a Tulsa massacre, which was also in yeah. Oklahoma, I believe. And they throw like two or three references to it. And like the OCH say, listen, like, look, look how they're treating black people over there. Like they obviously haven't got much love for us. Like if you're not white, you are finished in America. And they don't make it like a super, it's not a conversation that takes up much of the film. I'm sure like you guys probably don't even remember it, but like the way that they throw it in, is very useful. It's yeah. just a so it's, 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 it's to show that obviously things are happening outside. Yeah. I just want to touch on um kind of what you said about like interracial relationships as well uh, previously. Well, I think it was Jude that said it. Um, one of the things, no, school it was you that was talking about it because you was talking about the olders mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. One of the things that struck me was the mum man. Um, when the mum was like, "Oh, you marry, you marry, you marrying white or something like that," like. And like you're you're diluting our blood, and X Y Z. Now I, I now my nan is an old Jamaican lady, and I imagine my nan would probably say the same thing to any one of my uncles or aunties who have married outside of the family. Um, but yeah, uh, and I think that's just a very uh, that's obviously their their way of thinking because they've they've seen what happened and like um, back onto kind of like. The, the mum then kind of like saying to Molly like ah oh, this is why like your sister's my favourite and the sister was like the sister Anna was like um, the wild child to me um, and she seemed like the the least level headed but because she wasn't doing things that the mum like because she wasn't dating outside of her, of her race the mums then like chose to Except Anna more than she has Molly, if that but makes I sense. Think, I also think you have to again context clues here, but you have to realize the mum being that age because the mum was old for her age as well as a uh, Native American. She's probably watched generations of Native Americans get wiped out, like yeah. by the white man. So 100%. when you're looking at interrelationship relationships, there you're not looking at it in the lens of like oh, this happened 100 years ago, or oh, this happened 300 years ago, or oh, this was in the 1600s, you're looking at it as my granddad and my dad both died to these people. My mom died to this person, my grandma. Like, you're seeing exact generations, and then you're seeing the next generation be like, oh, it doesn't really matter. Like, it's also it's also a cultural element though, because the, the the film itself starts obviously kind of with the um with the elder kind of doing the, the ceremony with the pipe, and kind of they're burying it, and he kind of he's saying in that speech in in Osage, in kind of in that native tongue, saying that the kids outside they will speak English, they will have English culture, they'll have English ways, 
and it's almost like when they're burying that pipe it's they know they're done they know that it's they are history and, you know, and so straight away off the bat there is that kind of whole point of this is going to be a burying of this culture through kind of whether it is just through kind of and kind of like you know genocide and white supremacy so you know i think it's interesting like she knows that and even if she, at that point she's not you know thinking it's going to be through genocide at least she knows at the same time so it's like these white people are coming in even like when you had like it must have been earnest earnest parents i guess or you know kind of like old couple and they're talking about the children and she's saying well that one's clearly got more white than that one and then hit the other mm. guy, the grandpa's saying, like, yeah, but they're both, you know. Dirty what's the term? Yeah, basically he says, like, they're animals, they're savages. Yeah. It's, like, it's not their fault that they're savages. And it's just like, okay, wow, that's... Yeah, so, yeah, it can come across as, like, a, a weird kind of tone. But just to even, like, reiterate Scully's point on the fact that she's, or the grandma is seeing, is seeing her culture... Like vanish before her eyes and even in that introduction scene when like one of the oldest pass away and they they even say it like in the subtitles they say uh like what we're we gonna do now like our children don't know how to speak our like speak our language even and for me that that felt so it felt so powerful like the the introduction really felt like a a type of document documentary if you know what i mean like it was so powerful that it built up like a perspective for me of loss, like immediately. So I was going into the, I was going into the film and I was literally just thinking like, yeah, okay. I'm about to watch how these people lose their wealth. They lose their prosperity and they lose like their culture to like, yeah, to the American society. And it really, yeah, the the impression it, it it weighed heavy on me actually. Like I felt quite emotional throughout the film. I don't know if anyone else did, but for like the full three hours, I felt like a, I felt an aspect of loss, and I felt subscribed to their pain. And yeah, I just really wanted to use that film kind of as a segue to understanding what really happened and I feel like the power of this film and the intentions of Scorsese is at the end of the day to represent a wider issue here and I think through it now it's like in second nature to think oh when you think of Killers of the Flower Moon now you might think of the the book as well but you also think of the entire history of a peoples and you think of a wider spectrum spectrum of culture and happenings within society. I mean, yeah, and, and I think you know, it, I think it does take from to get this story out there. And I'll acknowledge and still kind of maintain the fact that I wish it was more from the kind of that Osage perspective, because as I say, I think that's when the film is the most interesting. You know. I think like my, if I recall back and I think about the scenes that kind of impact me the most are the ones that I keep replaying is kind of the parts where, you know, the Osage are kind of being killed off and you've got Molly kind of slowly growing into that paranoia that she's going to be next. And you kind of got that, you know, that scene where she sees the shadows coming up the stairs 
and you 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 know it's kind of building suspense and with the score you think it's going to be something evil and then it's kind of earnest but as the viewer you know that that is probably the worst thing it could be yeah. but she's not aware at that point and it's the same thing like you know there's a nice kind of mirror later on where when the mother's dying she sees that owl flying in and, you know and she says i'm death is coming for me because the owl's here to essentially almost kind of guard me on my way and then later on when Ernest is poisoning Molly, which by that point he should be, I think that needs to be handled more as a, he is complicit in it, not just taking orders. Cause as I say, I think then that almost gives Ernest a bit of humanity that I don't think he deserves. Yeah. There was but, a long, like a human yeah. there for him. And he didn't yeah. And, and I don't like that, but that scene works well because then Molly is kind of laying on her side and the owl comes in. And again, you know, that's that signifier of death. And when it kind of cuts back to reality, it's Ernest standing there. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, so for the audience, it's continually reaffirming that this this is a guy who cannot be trusted, even if then the way he, I think he's portrayed elsewhere kind of almost tries to give him that humanity or kind of that conscience that he doesn't deserve. Um, and, and, you know, it's all of those scenes with Molly, I think, are the best. And Lily Gladstone, if she was running in supporting actress at the Oscars, she would win by like a landslide. There'd be no doubt in anyone's mind that she, who that would go to. She's going to campaign for best actress, which I think is equally deserved. And I hope she wins. I think she does deserve to get that. The Academy won't, you know, because they'll end up giving it to probably either Emma Stone or to Carrie Mulligan at this point, probably for Maestro because that's, you know, a, a nice biopic about a white guy, and they love that, the Academy. So there's a chance, and I hope that you'd get it, but the film is at its most interesting when it's with Lily Gladstone, when it's with the Osage. I yeah. understand why Scorsese couldn't do that the whole way through, and he's not the person to do it, but I wish there was more, particularly in that final hour, that still kind of gave him that perspective, because that final hour is, you know, noticeably weaker because it has such a kind of, you know, reduced point of view from the Osage. I think what's interesting and kind of sad about it, I think in his age and his wisdom, because you become more wise as you get older, if you live right, not everyone does, obviously. Not all old people. Some old people are, you know, vagabonds. But um, in the case of Scorsese, he is... I think he's got wise with age, and I think he's happy to put subtle hints there. So it's great to show how they call depression melancholy then and how a lot of the Osage are getting it because they're subscribing to the Western world and where do they live and to um, consumerism and capitalism. And this is changing their life. And I think it's really subtle how it shows, yes, we put the Osage and other Native American people into the school system because we realised we could not kill them all. We, um, we should have we should have made them assimilate through the school system. And like, that's a very famous tactic that people use. Like when people talk about, again, this film to me is largely about structural racism and how it's hard to defeat and how people, especially white and people from the Western world benefit from it. And I think, yeah, it's kind of subtly put in there, but it never really like shows the depth of it. And that's fine because the people who get it, we'll get it. But also, I feel like in today's day and age, sometimes you just need to overtly tell people, like, yo, this was fucked up. <laughs> like, yeah. This is what they're doing, and this is why they were doing it. Um, but, 
generally, I think the message and the theme of the film I, was good. I just agree with you, Ross. I think they should have been a bit more Osage with it. I think they should have taken away Ernest's um, kind of infallibility. They didn't want to make him culpable, but they should have. Like, he actually was equally as bad as his uncle. Um, yeah. I like that Robert De Niro, like you said. If not more. Show. If not more, because he did more dirt. He put he put the dynamite under the house. He he was injecting his wife, like killing her. Like he did more dirt, and he was robbing people. And he was bro. He, he actually did. He's actually doing right? He's done a lot. Yeah, he done a lot. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, um, King was taking or like making the orders, but Ernest was serving the food essentially. Do you get me? Yeah. And he was very aware of it. And like, I think maybe it shows. Maybe Ernest is supposed to show how being complicit with racism will get you as far as actively trying to do it like his uncle and you know the the FBI being silent at the beginning even to the fact that they didn't come and investigate until the white maids and the sister's white husband died like there is lots of little nuggets of information and tidbits in there I'd like mm-hmm. but for all my negative takeaways and all my positive takeaways I have to say aesthetically it is a beautiful film like he shot it so well like sh- there's certain scenes like when the grandmother passes away she goes to the knife looks fantastic yeah like when they're riding into the planes even the races like aesthetically it might be one of my favorite scorsese's i can't lie yeah, yeah. aesthetically it's, it's good um part i want to touch on as well that i really liked and i said it to scully like the ending man where like we're in the theater and then they're explaining everything and then they're using like the instruments to do like the galloping of the horses and um, yeah. they're using like the matchsticks and stuff like that. Like I, I love, I loved that bit. Um, and I liked the fact that Martin was in the film as well. Like, you know, reading off uh, Molly's kind of last last part um, about her life and kind of like he said, um, you know, she didn't say anything about the murders. She just talked about her family and that was it. And that's another thing, like, I was speaking to Scully, and I think I said it in the group chat earlier this week. I said, I feel like Molly has Stockholm Syndrome because I feel like she knew what was going on. She knew that her husband was involved. And the point where she was like to Ernest, what was in the 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 insulin? Mm. If he would have told her what was in, I think she would have stayed, 100%. That's why when he said, I don't know, she was like, oh, you you really... Like, you actually don't love me enough to tell me. Yeah, you can't even be brave enough here to be like... So, do you know what? I'm gone. Yeah. Like, so, that, so that's what I really liked. And, I, and yeah, I just think that part of the film was great. And I also said to Scully, because I really needed a, I really needed a week because the film was flipping three hours and 30 minutes. I was like, Scorsese realised the time was the time was of the essence in it, so he needed to hurry it up. Yeah. yeah I think no. the, other thing with that, the other thing with that ending is because, like, again, like the first on my first viewing, I thought... Again, that was a little bit jarring. But then, you know, again, when you kind of go back to it a second time and you revisit it, it's because it's meant to be. You know, you, you've watched, you've got three and twenty three hours and 20 minutes of just these kind of like endless scenes of just genocide and just stuff that's heavy. The stuff that is, you know, horrible to sit through and watch and you're angry and, you know, you're kind of a bit disbelief that this has happened and it's just everyone's kind of just like getting away with everything they're doing. And it ends with that reporting just being an advertisement pitch for Lucky Strike cigarettes. You know, here's all of this genocide and all of this just 
horrible shit and we're going to summarize it nicely in a package in a few minutes selling lucky strike in a radio play that's kind of jovial and lighthearted and ultimately yeah molly's kind of you know obituary is going to be a couple of lines and it really who gives a shit and you, you kind of come out of it on that second time and it's just like that is just grim and you just have to sit with that weight so, uh, you know, first time around, jarring, but second time, you like, you get it. It's meant to be. It's meant to be yeah. uncomfortable. It's meant to be horrible. And it does it really well. Not to be one of those guys that is like, that that claims to be like, oh, I got, I got the film. But actually, that's what I felt kind of going into it, as I said earlier. Like, in the first 10 minutes, I got this impression of, like, a big, heavy loss here. And... Even to your point, CJ, with like the ending and like the different ways of seeing it, as as Ross did, like the fact that Scorsese like put himself in the film and the entire weight of it, this for me felt like a whole collection of, as it would be with any filmmaker's film, but I see it as a culmination of all of like the different factors of Scorsese up until that point. Like I saw. I saw themes of like who's knocking at my door because remember I was doing that thing where I was going back and watching all of his old films. So that was like the first one and specifically the scene where they're all dancing and they're all quite jubilant together and they're just like mixed. And it's like, it's like there's no care in the world right now. They're actually having fun together. But then you might see like the, the sisters talking about like the marriage and, and stuff like that and how that's actually Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline become commonplace to talk like that they were talking about it as if it was something trivial but the weight of it is really there and also gangs of new york i felt like so many moments and so many different shots paid paid homage to how scorsese captured that and the expanse of like this kind of like a world within a world and yeah it was just like a tremendous film and i, I definitely think we've had we've been given such a, a mm. weighty impression of a people and yeah, that will never go away. So big up Scorsese and yeah, I would actually give that film for me. It's a, it's a nine and no one can convince me otherwise, you know, it's like a, it's a good nine out of 10. I don't really give trauma type films or intended trauma type films like 10 out of 10s respectively, but Yeah. How do you can, guys see it? Can yeah, I just exactly. say as well, I, I, I said at 8.5, I think mm. when I watch it a second time, like Ross said, I'll probably like it a lot more. Um, so I'm going to go 8.5 for now. The actual ending though, where they gathered all the people and it looked like present day um, and they were just singing, that that literally gave me goosebumps. Mm. Like I liked it. And the thing was, um, obviously, I know, we, I know Scorsese didn't round up all, all Native Americans like possible. But like the amount of people with, that was there, I think was an, was also a symbolism of like, look, like 
there's not a lot of yeah. these these people left because of things like this that happen. Do you know what I mean? But they're still. Yeah. But even with that still happening, look at what they're doing. Like they're still, you know, about their culture and about their pride. And I really, really thought that was beautiful. So beautiful. so beautiful and yeah man like i think um yeah that brings to end like a or a view and a very roundabout talk about the killers of the flower moon by scully, G- scully and ross what did you rate it sorry because we didn't actually get yours oh, yeah i think i would give it for me <laughs> 7.9 out of 10 79 out of 100 um yeah i think there's some points we could have at home I, I did like it. I think it's as, you know, as a somewhat left-leaning man, I reckon as a scathing criticism of structural racism and capitalism, Scorsese did quite well. I just think he overestimated the intelligence of the mainstream audience. <laughs> like, I think some people will watch it and not get the point, which is actually totally fine. That's not always on him. But, like, do I think it achieves everything it should achieve? I, I can't honestly say that yet. Yeah, I need to go and watch it again. I think, like I said, just on direction, photography, stills, and like moving image, aesthetically beautiful. One of my favorites, actually, by Scorsese. Like, mm. if, if I was just looking at how it looked, I'd probably give it like a 8.8. Like, yeah. yeah no, so what did you say you'd give it all? It's 79 out of 100. Yeah. 7.9 out of 10, however you want to phrase it, in particular. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I tend to do mine just through, like, star ratings, because, like, letterbox and stuff, but, like, it's, um, yeah, four stars out of five, because, you know, again, for all those reasons, aesthetically and just purely from a filmmaking perspective is phenomenal, and it's, uh, you know, an incredible piece of work. So shout out to Rodrigo Prieto for the cinematography, who also did Barbie, so what a year he's had. Slightly different uh, tones there. Thelma Shoemaker continues to be probably the best editor alive. And, you know, kudos to her for taking on all the theatre chains that are throwing an intermission in uh, unjustly. Uh, But, you know, I think it's one of the Scorsese films that I've kind of had to grapple with the most. Because most of the time, like, I tend to just kind of, like, really sit well with his work. And the only other work that I've kind of seen from Scorsese that I've had to kind of either think a bit more or it just didn't gel with me so much was The Last Temptation of Christ. And it kind of makes me feel like maybe I should go back and watch that as well because, you know, he takes on some of these weightier themes and stories. And, you know, it should be unsurprising that he does the, you know, a good job with them. You know, he is a careful hand. And, you know, look at what he does with the World Cinema Project. And he actively goes out and protects films from kind of you know minority audiences and kind of you know countries across the world where it won't kind of get that support you know and I think whenever a new Scorsese movie comes out you have to see it whether you like it or not or whether it's perfect or not it is an important moment in cinema we're not going to have too many more of these and also I think the sad thing is is that you know this is going to be a successful film which is great but it still took him going around basically every studio house, every streamer, and being told no before Apple finally coughed up the cash and said, we want it. And ultimately, they did that so that they can have, one, a Scorsese film in their library, and two, probably some more chances at an Oscar. 
But come next year, they probably won't give them that again. They'll say, we've got our one shiny Scorsese on the wall. So, you know, it's one of those ones that I'll probably watch again and again, and I'll probably change my thoughts on it each time. Yeah. I do that with a lot of films. I think it's it's so weighty and there's so much to kind of consider and reflect on that. As you know, it's almost kind of, you know, stupid to try and give it kind of a rating or a score because it'll probably change every time. Yeah, sometimes no. I'll watch it and I'll probably hate it and be like, this Definitely. is just disgusting. And other times I think maybe this is the perfect film. I don't know. You know what? I always find it a bit tedious asking like, oh, what did you give it out of 10? But sometimes it's like a good markup for... I actually like the most, like, what Scully did with it, actually. I I like giving things FIFA scorings. Like, if we're going to do something like that, we might as well make it, like, interesting or even look at something and maybe give it, like, a Pokemon card. And you know what I mean? Like, But, yeah, generally, I think with Scorsese and these films, as you said, you can keep, like, watching these over, over and over again and it will have so much, so many different impressions on you and... Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm going to need to see again. But moving on, what we do have to talk about, that is just one of the films, actually, that we got to see collectively throughout like the London Film Festival. But unfortunately, CJ's got to leave us, right? Yeah, I've got to go. I'm going to go home, guys. I've been recording from work. It's very yeah. late right now. And you didn't get to see many BFI films anyway. I didn't so. get to see any one, actually. I was, I was away. So and also that was one. Killers of the Flower Moon was one. Oh no, no, no. Well, apart from that, I didn't get to see anything else in it. Like I didn't didn't get to see anything else. But um yeah. next year, we'll be there. We will be there, like Pep said. Um yeah. anyway, I'm gone. Peace, enjoy. Um Good and fun. guys, enjoy listening to the rest of the guys. Love, man. And yeah, no, you yeah. know what? You know what's funny? I've even got a gotta say this like i was just so eager to talk about killers of the flower moon that i didn't actually even ask you guys like what have you been like, watching recently like i know we normally just talk about that like every week and yeah we've been apart and i feel like ross you've definitely been watching a lot of stuff we haven't like talked about it in a while so yeah what you've been what you've been on Oh my god! Yeah, I'm just going to go through, like, because I've watched. I mean, you know, it's we're recording this on Halloween, by the way, as well. So yeah. I have been watching my fair share of uh, of horror movies and kind of spooky movies to kind of get into the uh, to get into the swing of things. A lot of it kind of older school. Um, I've seen some stuff that's kind of come out recently um, or within the kind of like the last year, including The Pope's Exorcist, which, if you want to see Russell Crowe just get paid to do the worst Italian accent you've ever heard, but enjoy himself <laughs> on a moped. Yeah, the trailer, Incredible. The trailer killed mm-hmm. me. Literally, it's a movie that he, I reckon he bought a Vespa and he wanted to probably just claim it on his fences. And it's just like, if I do this movie, that's it. I'm sorted. Yeah. I get to just ride around Italy <laughs> on a Vespa and get paid, I don't know, a few million dollars probably. Um, I also watched Infinity Pool, which came out earlier this year, which is... Um, Brandon Cronenberg's kind of latest movie, The Son of David Cronenberg. And that was fucking weird. <laughs> I mean, it's that is unsurprising. And, you know, if you're into all sorts of body horror and just gore and just freaky psychological stuff, then yeah, give it a look-see. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like in terms of actually kind of heading to the cinema, you know, I think like all kind of three of us here, I did quite, I did two full days at the, the film festival this year and managed to see quite a lot. 
Um, yeah. How many guys, how many films did you guys see in the end, actually? You know, I was doing this count like the other day, but I think I've already forgotten it. So I'm going to try and remember and list them off right now. So there was the Book of Clarence. Um, All of Us Are Strangers. What else? What else? Cobweb with Scully, right? Mm-hmm. Um, There was another one. Yeah, The Holdovers. The Boy and the Heron. And there was something else that keeps missing me. There was one kitchen. other. The kitchen, the yeah. Kitchen, yes. Kitchen. I think I saw yeah, so, five. Yeah, that, that was five. What did I watch alone? I can't remember what I watched alone now, actually. What yeah, there you... was another one that I watched alone. And I think there was another one you watched. No, the other one, Les Indesirables. Yeah, we no, watched that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That is... Seven, right? I don't think I got my it's seven. Me. I got Book of Clarence, Boy in the Heron. I think I did eight. Um, does this Gorsese talk count? Yeah. <laughs> really I reckon really it should do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so eight now. Yeah, yeah. It was good. Cobweb, obviously. I think Cobweb was actually probably my favorite film. Mm. Nice. Yeah. I mean, uh, should we go? Should we? Should we? Should we go quickly do a, a rip round and say? Yep. Your favorite, and why not? Let's make it interesting. Say your least favorite as well. Okay, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start with Cobweb. I think Cobweb was my favorite, and I'm not sure why it was my favorite. I think it was just quite, quite something quite different, and I think the way it was directed was really interesting. I'm a big fan of Korean cinema. Anyway, we've seen a few films within a film or films about making films recently, and I think this was the best one, and like it made loads of since the beginning it's almost like it started a bit meta and then it ended like taking the piss like it was i don't want to say it was nonsensical but like it wasn't about being mm. meta. it was just like a weird like absurd love letter to making films and what that process is and like does anyone really have original ideas like mm. i thought that was sick um my least favorite this is really difficult and really harsh I think it might have been, and this is going to surprise everyone because if you know me, you know what I love. I think it might be the boy in Heron. Like, okay. I really love Ghibli, and I, that is just, I just think it bolded in on itself too much, that film. And I really enjoyed the first hour, and then by the end, I didn't. <laughs> like, by the end, I was just like, oh. like, yeah, you were definitely underbumped because all three of us went and saw that, didn't we? And we were all in that yeah. together. We came out after, and you you did look the most gutted coming Jude, out. You were Jude a bit like, eh. did doesn't think that was my least favorite because there's another film that you wanted. To yeah, no, no, no. But do you know? And, you know and genuinely, I, I want to explain myself. Like, do you want me to say? It? Do you want me to say it on the pod? No, no. You know what? I was more. I'll, I'll say. I'll have to say. Because you know how I feel. Well. You know how I felt about. The kitchen. I was surprised. So basically, you know, I know. <laughs> after, after we finished watching the kitchen, obviously we watched the premiere. There was loads of people there, and a lot of people were like, "Yeah, it was cool." Or some people just straight up said they didn't like it. It got questionable reviews online the next day. Um, but I really liked it. I genuinely just really liked it. Like again, yeah. another scathing review of capitalism. I thought. The unsaid things. I like unsaid things in films, and I think there's a lot of unsaid things about relationships. And um, yeah, like the relationship yeah. between men and like like boys and young men and all of this. Like it did a lot of that in the film. So 
I remember leaving that film and I really liked it. And I like, it actually took me a second to figure out what people didn't like about it. Maybe for me, The Boy in the Heron is probably the thing I didn't like purely because, and to be fair, let me make it clear. I didn't dislike it. I advise everyone to watch every film. The reason why I said Boy in the Heron is because I probably had such high hopes for it as a big yeah. Yeah, That's it's your true. biggest disappointment because you you were hoping to get more. Yeah, yeah, I thought I thought from before I watched The Boy in the Heron, first of all, these guys had tickets before. I didn't have tickets. I got my tickets on the day. like So it was like a last yeah, minute. Same, same. I got my tickets just a couple of hours before you. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out London Film Festival Stubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Hashtag, that, hashtag, that hashtag saved, saved us. Saved so, Got me like five tickets throughout like the festival, and like, yeah. but but because it was a last minute surprise that I was going, I was so like hyped, like yeah, this film's gonna be sick. Love Ghibli, can't believe it. It might be his last one, it might not. All of this, and then we watched it. We came out, and like I don't know if you remember, but like Ross Williams talked to me. I was just like, yeah, like it was again. It was aesthetically beautiful. Like it was drawn something. Yeah, doing, but like that last hour, I was like. You've just folded everything in on itself, like. I think it was even for me. I think it was more the fact, like I, I really liked the boy in the heron, but I, I, I think the problem that I had with it was that it was building and building and building, and you've got all of this kind of like deep lore, and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is quite a convoluted story, and it's going to try and bring it all together, and then it's just like, oh, it's time to end this thing, and then yeah. suddenly it's like a fifteen-minute scene, and then it's then it's like hurtling towards the end, and then um. And then it's just like, yep. And then we move back to Tokyo. Yeah. It's yeah. And then exactly. it's in credits. And it's just like, what? Like, yeah. that's a bit jarring. And, you know, that's so everything thing. before was like great. And this is like, it's, it's just over. So, oh. Yeah. That's one thing I, I definitely have to agree because I think I liked it the most out of us three. But I think I, I kind of saw it as like the context of this is one of his last films. He wants to like literally make a story that is quite symbolic of that journey. And then, yeah, I feel like we are talking about like that, the aspect of that and that like, the, the character, mm. I even forgot like the main character's name, but yeah, we we're talking about that aspect of it. And for me, a Ghibli, a Ghibli film is like a, it's supposed to be a combination of beautiful aesthetic and like more of a concentration on yeah. different like aspects of just a livelihood. Mm. And it, it builds that like aura of like a setting. And as you said, Ross, like it built up like a weight and a law and then it just kind of like crumbles. But yeah, I feel just, like it built too much and then it yeah. just doesn't know how to stick the landing, which is, which is fine. Yeah. I feel like this is more of a. It felt more of like a childish. Has have you all have you guys seen like the um, the Tales of Princess Kaguya? Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not seen that one. Yeah. That is that is like for me is probably like the best looking Ghibli kind of film in the sense of what they were actually going for aesthetically. But I felt even that film felt more like a child fairy tale, if you know what I mean, Scully. It was it was. Yeah. It's more pitched at. Mm. It's probably intended for the younger audience, and I feel like this Ghibli film is probably, maybe in their society, a film to introduce 
younger kids to you think it felt really childish i felt like it was almost too male i think it was too existential my issue with it my issue was was twofold i feel like he tries to outdo spirited way mm -hmm. like he was actively trying to outdo it like obviously that's when you think about it like sorry to cut you off but i I do agree with you it's very existential but i feel like you look at the stakes like when you look at like princess mononoke you look at um, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. You look at um, Castle of the Sky. You look at the, all of these types of Ghibli films. It's, they're built up with the weight of like, right, the world is dying. Like, the forest is being killed. It's it's very impressionable and like and like heavy. And it could be very like meta in a sense. Like, it's probably looking at, at like the rainforest that's being knocked down and, and saying like, this is going on and this is why we should save the save the forest. It's magical. It does this thing. But I feel like with this, it builds up all of that and that existential weight. And it's just like, just just relax, take it easy. And it crumbles yeah. really quickly. You know what I mean? It's not, I don't think it's supposed to super weigh on, weigh in on you like that. Mm. Like, it doesn't feel like the reaction I got from what's in those films that I mentioned, you know, yeah. or something like um, Grave of the Fly Fires is like an yeah. earlier production but the weight of that in contrast to this this felt felt like a a super light-hearted one that's really interesting because i think I gonna... ghibli films are sorry ross i I'm, i thought ghibli films are like in my eyes the way i view them is i think they're separated by interpersonal problems and relationships so that mm-hmm. grief and like moving on stuff like um spirited away which is a good one to look at or ponyo which is like movement change all of these things so stuff that kids those are ones that i see is like the more like i guess insular ones and then you have the ones like um captain poor poro poker rosso that's the one and um princess mononoke which is probably my favorite which is like they're looking at things as a concept like war or mm. environmentalism and all of these type things i think you can do both really well but yeah my main issue with the boy and the Herald was just like i think the first hour hour and a half where you, he's explaining why he's moved out there and his dad remarrying and just like introducing the theme of grief and moving on and how adults and children deal with grief i think mm. it's like really good like mm. i wouldn't call it flawless but it's really good like i was really enjoying the film to that point and then there's a point in the film around the halfway point maybe two thirds away like final act where i just think so much starts going on and that i might be interpreting it wrong but nothing really means anything like all these characters are being introduced and all these things are happening it doesn't really mean anything and then it just ends and you're just like okay cool like yeah that's why i I reckon it felt childish to me because i feel like they built up the story and we're jabbing at the story story like when we're outside but that's why it felt like childish in that sense to me because it's like okay cool you've got you've got this very tragic incident and as you said you're going through grief you're going through a very existential time in your life you're thinking of so many different things and you're here now and yeah it, it built up all that expectation and then it's like light steps towards a very fine ending and much didn't mean much you know but um yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about with this 
film and other Ghibli films, and maybe we should kind of reserve that for another day. But back to Ross's question, what did... Yeah, I even need to answer it. So what was my favourite and what was not my favourite? I would say... You've already said Cobweb, and I feel like we liked Cobweb in the same way. But I feel like the holdovers might just have a hold over me. (laughs) Yeah, the holdovers, like... um, Bro, that for me is like a really good Christmas film. It's it, it it has everything, man. It's comedy. I think you guys would love the comedy. You you guys would be laughing your head off. You're it's like, actually the one that I'm probably the most jealous that I didn't get to see. Yeah, same. I was because I remember I I, come, I think we were all together. It might have been Oppenheimer. I'm not sure. There was somewhere yeah. where we watched the pre- with the uh, trailer, and I was like, I want to see that film. Yeah. Because I, I was in yeah. London on the day of the premiere for that as well, but it was it would have been too late for me to then get back to Southampton at the same time. So I went yeah. for something else instead. But I know that you kind of said a lot of great things about it. So what, it what was, was it exactly? You know what? Like so, the holdovers is is basically about like a it's based on a New England prep school, and I think it's um it's it's like set in the seventies, I believe. But yes, directed by Alexander Payne. It's featuring Paul Giamatti, Davine, Joy Randolph, and it's got this like newcomer who I think is going to be a little outstanding actor called Bradney Hepner. Haven't seen him in anything else, but yeah, he was really good. And yeah, so The Holdovers is basically a film about the holdovers at this New England prep school. And it's a very like fancy school. Your um, your parents have to be rich for you to get admitted there, and so they have a spread of kids who are kind of like spoiled, rich. Um, dads are like um, uh, governors, politicians, or whatever. All of that kind of stuff, unless they their parents have paid a, a, a like really, um, yeah, insurmountable amount of money to just get there. So, yeah. Paul Giamatti is like the professor who has to look after the kids over the holidays. And this is like the Christmas period. So the film works out to be a Christmas film. And it's just like, he's looking after these kids over that period. And he has to like break his character. His character is like kind of a recluse, um, single old kind of very nerdy historian professor. And he kind of uses his, his like understanding of history to manage the children. And yeah, man, it's just like a really fucking funny Christmas slash teen drama. Like, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so quite funny. a good coming of age film, which is so, so like, good. Those films yeah. are always quite good. I mean, it's out in a few weeks. Actually, I'll be, I'll be quite excited to kind of like, you know, get down there and kind of see that. Cause that's kind of high on my list for the year. Yeah. So what about what about your least favorite, Jude? Mm. Yeah, I'll have to be honest because I feel like every film I saw was great. Yeah, I don't I'll... think that's what I personally say. By the way, before, I want to give you, I want to give you some bail. Yeah, I don't think, and obviously you can change your mind. This, but I don't think I saw a single f- film that was below a seven point five out of ten. Like not one. Everything was really good. Even Book of Clarence, which I thought I was, I, I was gonna be quite skeptical about. Yeah, ended up being probably my second favorite. That's that's great. I I really like the book of Clarence. I've even seen that twice. I saw that once with Sony P 
pictures and another time at the festival because yeah just just had to it was that funny as well i would say the holdover is definitely it's funny in its own way but yeah mm-hmm. i checked that out oh yeah being honest i think the kitchen is probably like my least favorite out of the films but i do believe the only reason why is because it's like a Got to think that like, two new directors in yeah. Daniel Kaluuya and um, Kipwe Daniels, and it's like it's a it's a really interesting film. Um, uh, not to give away too much about it, but it's a film set in like a futuristic dystopian London, where the kitchen is like an area, an area that's oppressed by the wider society, and it's it's sectioned off and. It's like a, a story about gentrification. I would even say like a futuristic concept, so concept to an extent of ends, if I could say. And yeah, like it's it, like very interesting ideas. And I've even like done some some like work with, uh, you know, like with uh, with Netflix, like on the on the set and stuff like that, and like personal freelance stuff, but. I would say it's a film that it's a type of film. You know what? For for me, I just thought this now. I would put it on a similar level of Bright. Remember that? Remember Bright? Like, I remember Bright. I actually liked Bright. I think Bright. I did, like Bright. I did like Bright. I did like Bright, but I had a lot to I had a lot to criticize about it. And I think Bright too should be eventually coming out. And I feel like with Netflix productions and stuff like that. It's more Netflix are, are weird, man. Like as you were saying earlier, um, Ross about Killers and the Flower Moon and Apple. It's like Apple, they've given Scorsese the money. They have that one big production and stuff. And yeah, as you said, they won't give him that again. Probably, I I hope they do, but it would have to make sense. And I don't think he's got a Killers like two Killers of the Flower of the Moon type films just sitting there. You know what I mean? You might have something else, but. That's another conversation. With The Kitchen and films like these Netflix productions, it's like they make these films or TV shows, for me, just to test the water of an idea. So it's like they don't Mm -hmm. fully invest in it. They'll just be like, okay, cool. There's this concept. There's this actor that's free that wants to have like a a film. Here, go go and do it. And pretty, pretty cool. Like, yeah, some promo here and there. We've got this, like, pop-up party in, like, London. Come to this viewing. Like, that's normally how it goes. And I will happily go to that viewing. Like, no offense. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like you're not fully fleshing out the idea and you're not giving it the full respect of a production. And that's why the strikes and stuff happened. And I, I can imagine with a film like this, as well, like, we got to, yeah, carry on. I actually have some information. I don't think I can share on the pod, but I'll tell you guys um, after that there was a lot of difficulty in filming for reasons outside of the directors and mm. the cast and the production that made it. That's another thing I was that going made to it say. Really hard for it to come back. So the fact that they managed to finish the film in itself yeah. is somewhat a triumph. Because what I, I, was didn't gonna... have this, I didn't have this context when it finished. Like, well, like I said, when I finished watching it, I just quite liked it. I thought it was. Strong enough for what it was, a statement of, again, capitalism and relationships between men, like, 
I thought it was strong enough for what it was. Like, maybe it's because, and maybe to what I said about the Bull Heron, it was about expectations. I went in with no expectations and left mm. pleasantly surprised yeah. as opposed to like any disappointment. But when I found out the context a week later of the making of the film, um, I was actually just quite proud that they finished it. And yeah. yeah. But don't you remember, like, um, before the film started, we did have that brief Q&A and I actually, as I said, I had the chance to be on set. I did um, do some work, but the loose of the loose information around that for me was this is a production that's been going on for 10 years, essentially. They've been trying to make this for 10 years. So in terms of the ideas and the original story, it's not like every year that you have a story like this, you get to update it and make it as relevant as it could be. So imagine if this came out 10 years ago now and what, like 10 years ago, isn't that like when I would say uh, the first episodes of like Top Boy and that was coming out, very different concepts, but even Top Boy right, with the investment that it had then from like Channel 4, it, it had that kind of, this is a small world element and you can be attached to it. But with a Netflix production, it's like a lot might go in the effects, the building up of, of everything else and the actual story elements and even the settings and stuff, they start to go missing and you just kind of concentrate on yeah, bolstering around it as opposed to giving it true life. And I feel like, yeah, I could see it through that lens, but I'm hoping, and by the reviews, as we shared in the, in the group chat, I'm hoping, like, um, when it does come out, like, people aren't super harsh on, harsh on it. Um, I do think it was. it's just, like, a, a film that would be very enjoyable to, like, watch on Netflix on, like, maybe, like, a, on an evening after work. And, yeah, like, very exciting at this. I actually hope there's a second one. I think, like, there's there's life to it, you know? I think it's a non-spoiler review. Yeah, I mean, that's some of the challenge. Like, like, because I was meant to see the kitchen, but again, because of travel, I had to kind of give that ticket away uh, and head back to Southampton. And um, with some of the stuff I kind of saw and read was that, you know, that there's interesting ideas and themes, but part of it is, you know, some of it's slightly generic and, you know, it's just a little bit underbaked. And I feel like there's a lot of Netflix stuff. And it's to your point, Jude, you know, there's there are good stories that they don't really flesh out and maybe that's also partly so you know they can franchise don't give all your ideas at once because let's do something that's kind of half cooked so that we can then have a second one and explore those themes there so then you kind of you don't necessarily get movies that are fully satisfying or like memorable but you get more of them i think that's what netflix does quite a lot and that's always a bit of a challenge yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think it's so sad because, again, going back to Bright, I even think Bright had like a, it had like an ending-ish I could rock with. Like, it, there was good things about it, good elements about it, but you're not giving it life. You're not injecting it with the respect that you want it to have from the, the views. And yeah, that for me is like a problem that we just start getting like, it's like we're being fed content that is expected to do well in like the reviews, but really it's like the proper straight to DVD type of films. And that used to have a market, yeah. but 
what what they're doing to, with like the scripts and the ideas, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. You could be making yeah. this much better. You could be having cinema releases for for instance. So the kitchen will come out in cinema, but um, actually there was some viewings of like Bright, right? Like a few. No, or, I, I don't, usually they have to. Usually Netflix does like, for example, The Killer is out there at the moment, and just because they yeah. have to do it if they want to give it like a um an Oscar run, it's got to run at least in a big chunk of theaters in yeah. certain markets for at least two weeks so that it can be eligible for for the Oscars. But it's um it's interesting that you kind of talk about kind of certain Netflix films being what would be traditionally direct to DVD in that kind of bargain bin because yeah. that is where my worst film for the festival would go, and that is the Buckingham Murders. And I was messaging <laughs> you, you guys hated, about that. You actually hated this film, like you actually that film was fucking it. shit. That's why. I mean, like you know, it's I, I never like to speak too badly of a film, especially because you know at a festival because there's obviously like a lot of attention and thought you'd think that kind of goes into kind of actually making it but like from like the opening scenes you already know like this this film is bad like the film kind of starts with like the shootout in a bowling alley but like one of the first shots is like a hyper slow-mo of the bowling ball going towards some pins and the sound is just like a really sort of like distorted sound of the the bowling ball going to like on the uh, surface and then you just see a little kid get shot and you think, okay, that's not the best start. It's a bit rough. And then it is just, it is just overwrought and just ridiculous kind of like, I think when I kind of wrote it on Letterboxd and when I was talking to someone about it, it's like, imagine like a really bad ITV drama. Yeah. It's that, but it's like it's <laughs> worse. So, because obviously it would have got, probably got more money, obviously bigger billing. And like, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a shit like cop drama. And it's just, there's so many like twists and turns and like, it's like, oh, okay, this guy clearly did it. It's like, oh, no, he didn't, but he's guilty of something else. And did you know that this person's related to that person who's related to this person? This person killed him and he killed her and they all hate each other. <laughs> and it, there's, the only benefit I'll give it is that it, it tr- does try to do something interesting at, in stages because it tries to frame, because it's, it's about a, um, uh, I, I believe it's kind of an Indian police officer and it's set, you know, kind of in that sort of backdrop of kind of like race riots and kind of race violence in kind of Leicester and things. So you think, okay, maybe they're trying to bring this kind of element to it. And it's meant to be the struggles of her not being able to do her job effectively because of racism. But then it kind of parks that a little bit and then focuses more just on the fact that it wants to make this hyper melodrama, which just isn't that interesting. And, you know, like I just explained that intro there's a scene then later on where you see the kid in close-up with a CGI bullet exploding through his chest. It's like, I don't need to see that. This is completely irrelevant because we already understand her trauma and why she's upset. Because every five minutes, there's slow-mo of her running around a field with her son. And it's just um, like, it's bullshit. I hate it. It's rubbish. Maybe... And it's... No, so go on. And it's coming to Netflix at some point, but they'll probably just hush it away somewhere. Like, it won't be getting a banner... It probably won't get any billing. It would just be one day, new this week, the Buckingham murders. Mm. That's wild, man. Yeah, you, um, you didn't sound I, like you enjoyed it at all, man. I just read okay. um, some reviews, and IMDb is quite favourable. So, like, 8.7, I was like, okay. And then the synopsis couple of what you're saying, I was like, okay, maybe there's something to see. Okay. Then I went up to the letterbox, and... <laughs> 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 I felt stuck 
in a place between a conscious drama and expiration uh, grief. Didn't feel a thing. Tough to sit through. <laughs> Underwhelming. The thing is, right, it's only got 39 views on Letterboxd. So I reckon all of those had to have been from the London Film Festival, myself included. And the majority of those reviews are from, well, mostly two and a half stars and below. The oh, only person that made any impact was Karina Kapoor's slaps. Well. There you go. Yeah. Oh, let's. Oh, Ross Taylor's review. And yeah, there we go. Overall, an overwritten disappointment. Yeah, yeah. an ITV drama. There's <laughs> something interesting within, but those moments are all poorly handled with direction that is amateurish far too often. This is the only dud. And it's been liked three times, so you were sweating. Listen, <laughs> the people respect honesty. But yeah, yeah. shit. Lays, <laughs> lay, also, I'll, I'll, I'll park it for now, but Lay uh, Indesirable, mm-hmm. I also had problems with, but I won't mm-hmm. go into that now because maybe that's another one we could tackle another time. Um, yeah. Favourite from the festival, Poor Things was probably my favourite film from the festival. Um but I think that's coming out soon and we might do a pod on that. So I won't talk into that. But the two I will say, a special mention, uh, Hirokazu Koryeda's Monster mm-hmm. and then uh, kind of Close Your Eyes, which is a Spanish drama. Career hours long um, and the director hasn't made a film in like 30 years. And both of those w- were great. I basically spent the whole of my first day at the festival just in um, in Curzon Soho. Uh, no, not Curzon Soho, Curzon Mayfair just back-to-back kind of in films. And both of those were back-to-back, and they're just great. Um, Monster's probably going to get the wider release because it's a Corriere movie. And that is... Uh, also, that is probably one of, like, probably my second favourite from the festival. It's kind of about... Um, it's the perspective of, like, an, an incident that happens in a school between a child and his teacher. Mm. But it's told from, like, multiple different vantage points. So, like, you have, like... The first kind of act, if it were, was like from the perspective of the the um, like the mother. Then it's the perspective of the teacher. Then the kind of the child, etc. And you know, the good thing with Corriere in like all of his films is that he brings lots of you know a real humanity and kind of that real sense of empathy to everything. And it's like no more kind of than here, and it's just handled really perfectly. There's kind of all these kind of trickier and kind of challenging themes that he handles kind of very very well but also kind of in a way that if it was another director it would be traumatic and maybe kind of like verging on that sort of kind of melodrama but instead here he kind of takes what can be very dark matters but actually kind of injects some hope injects some kind of you know kind of positivity into it and you know I think that is going to be probably quite a popular film once it comes out. So, yeah, that, I'd say that's the one I would recommend. You know, I'd say Poor Things was my favourite, but that's probably going to be out in a few weeks or just before Christmas. Well, actually, no, it's after Christmas. I think it might be January. But I'm sure we'll probably cover it off then, so I will say less. And that's yeah. it. That is that it. Is, that is really interesting, actually. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate the spread of films that we all got to see i know like um i feel like me and me and scully definitely watched like a a similar spread but there's one film i watched that was just after it ended technically 
And yeah. I just want to shine some light on it quick because it's you can view it now. Everybody should watch it. It's called Pressure. It's a first feature length black British film, and it was one of my favorite films. Um, by Horace Ove. I'll talk about it probably on the next episode. But yeah, let's keep going. Yeah. And Pressure, uh, I believe, is out on the South Bank at BFI this week. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's uh, streaming from now or showing from now rather. Sick. Yeah. No. Yeah, I should definitely check that out. But yeah, man. Like um. A uh, very, I'd say, London Film Festival heavy episode today. Like leaning back from Killers of the Flower Moon, and yeah, we touched on a whole spread of things. And yeah, nice podium with you boys. It, it's been fun to get back to it's together. Good to be back, CJ yeah. had to leave early, but yeah, we will be back, and we should be reviewing some of those films in full that we did did see. And we'll probably catch up. And also, we do have to talk about Loki. Yeah, yeah. We have to to talk about. Yeah, we got lots to talk about. Lots to catch up on. Yeah, definitely. Like more film news and conversations. But yeah, until then, it's been your guys. Take care. Sports Social Podcast Network.